coming at you from the EBITDA Growth System Studios, looking out at the beautiful Rocky Mountains. My name is Dave Gapkiewicz, and I'm with Mike Watkins, and we want to welcome you to the Making Business Profitable podcast. Good day, Michael. Good day, Dave. How are you? I'm doing good, man. How are you? All right. It's been a while since we came into our uh, podcast studio here. It's been like a week, week and a half. Yeah. But it's this fantastic facility we've moved into. Can't wait for our listening audience to swing by and see us. Yeah. When is that? And we're, op- we're having an open house when? November 19th? Yes, but they don't have to wait till the open house. If they're in the area, they should come by and see us in beautiful downtown Golden. Absolutely. Call Mike. Call Mike Watkins, and uh, he'll set up an appointment for you to walk through and uh, see the facility. Would love to have you guys. Yeah. Schedule a walkthrough. Just pop in. (laughs) We'll have coffee and hopefully donuts for you. Whoa, whoa, whoa with the donuts, Mike. Come on. So what's going on? What's new? Well, you know, I... uh, uh, Went to IMTS with you, and uh, that you know that first of all that 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 venue, McCormick Place, is voluminous, man. I mean that's voluminous. Gotta be the it's biggest. Huge. It is huge. I mean, each building is huge, and how many buildings were there? And uh, every time I say huge, I think of Donald Trump. It's huge. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. I know. You love it. When I, I, I don't Donald. think about Donald Trump ever. <laughs> uh, but, Ooh. <laughs> but you know, uh, to have that facility just full of technology, manufacturing technology, mm-hmm. was uh, really impressive. They, you know, they have a robot tossing a Ferrari around. I mean, it was, it was a spectacle. It was a real spectacle. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. It's nice to see. A lot of the new technology, what's going on with uh, new technology. It's, uh, guys like me geek out on that, like to see the new machines, what the new technology around the machines are, you know, who has machines today. Yeah, you yeah. Know, we spent, uh, we were in and out. We we showed up on Monday and we left Monday night. It was about a 20-hour day for us, really. But, uh, um, but even with that subset, we didn't even see a third of the show. It was all about people. Yeah, it was all about people. I mean, you certainly made a made a mission to get around and see people uh, blast from the past for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just fantastic to see those people that you have had 20-plus year relationship with and where they have landed and, you know, how fond you were of them and how fond you they were of you and just talking about the good old times. And it, it was cool. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, it was pretty cool. We saw some people that have been been in a couple different um, venues or different, you know, last time they were at DMG and this time they're at Doosan. And, and then one, uh, of course, we saw some guys at Citizen have been there for a really long time and has his own dealership. Really cool. Really cool yeah. to see people that uh, we've known for years and years and that support what we're doing. And, and we'd love to see them in a very successful place. That's, that's for sure. And... You know, we got to hang out in the pro shop booth for a minute. How cool was that? Yeah, and with the factor guys and the paperless yeah. parts guys, and yeah, it's just is old home week. It was it was good. Yeah, it was it was really cool. It was really cool, and of course, we got to hang out with the making chips guys for a, for a minute before they took stage, and those guys are awesome. Yeah, um, that was fun. So absolutely. So, what are we going to talk about today, Dave? You know, 
I think we're going to talk about high mix, low volume. I think the majority of our clients deal with high mix, low volume work. Um, there's some production out there, but it's not like everybody does millions and millions of parts or even thousands of parts. Typically, our clients are doing between three and 50 yeah, uh, of mean, a part. So that's, yeah. you know, there are some, we have a couple that are do higher, higher volume production, but that's not the, that's not the majority, right? You know, I didn't have an appreciation really for this whole concept of, uh, you know, high mix, low volume. And, um, we had a client, uh, um, he ended up getting, um, acquired, but, um, he really liked the high mix, low volume thing. And he felt like his folks liked it because they mm-hmm. could be artisans. They could make stuff. And, um, I remember you saying, Hey man, we gotta, we gotta diversify. We gotta have some production in here. Cause you have some very expensive machines. People, people love it when I say that. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> you know. But him in particular, he he just had a penchant for buying really expensive DMG machines. Yep. And yep. Most of most of the machines are five, six, seven hundred grand. Yeah, and so uh, you know we're like you, the math is not working for you, bro. You got you got to get some hours. Got to get hour, yeah. Got to earn more hours on the equipment, regardless whether it's more high mix, low volume, or or some high volume work. I mean, it's about getting earned hours and measuring those hours, understanding what you're making those hours and do those hours turn into real dollars at the end of the P&L, right? Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's And it's so he came, he came along kicking and screaming, um, but it was, in fact, the volume job that uh, is the two-year volume job that turned his company on his head. It tripled the value of his business. Yes. I mean, uh, so I, I became a believer because I was – I was like, leave him alone, man. Stop picking on him. Yeah. And like then I, I said, saw, people love it when I start talking about it. When I saw what happened, it was like, uh, now I'm, now I'm, uh, that's the, every client we have. I'm like, hey, you got to address this. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I started my shop in the 90s and I started as a job shop. I made one part here, three parts here, five parts here and ran them on a mill, ran them on a lathe, ran them on a wire, ran them on a Swiss. We had five axis, seven axis grinders. We had welders where we did assemblies and we would do one, three, five pieces all the time. I mean, this just happened all the time. And we worked round the clock, man. People pulled ridiculous amounts of overtime. And I didn't make much money. There was yeah. a couple of things I didn't do right, you know. I didn't really realize the value. But boy, when I had a couple jobs that was running 100 parts here, 200 parts here, 300 parts here, and then I got those with a nice, nice customer that was consistent or orthopedic parts, uh, once I got that, and then I had my high mix, low volume over here, and I had my production over here, then that the vo- all the money from the volume covered all my yeah, overhead. It. Yep, yep. Did I make tons of money an hour? No, but it was steady. It was about yeah, hundred yep. bucks, eighty-five to hundred bucks an hour, depending on what I was making. But I made that money. But it covered twelve hours a day, yeah. every day, on the same parts, and those parts are repeat parts. And then the other parts, the one-off, I found that I could charge. A little bit more for those, sometimes 125 sometimes $200 an hour because they wanted it so fast and there's a lot of overtime wrapped around it. And then I worked towards standardizing that, and then all of a sudden money started falling through the P&L. Uh, so the production, I mean, production's hard to get, man. It isn't like every... It's for a small to, to medium-sized business, because everybody it wants is it. really hard. You're yeah. competing against the big guys, sure, right? But, sure, But if you can find... It, it's all about strategy. Look at the customers. Look at the small volume parts and the 
the high mix uh, low volume parts and say which one of these parts has a little potential to get to turn into 50 parts sure sure which one has that potential which one can come back every month and it's strategy and it's talking to the to the buyers or the engineers hey what do you have that goes along with this hey I, I love the prototype we use prototype to grow into low volume production I don't care if it's five ten parts a month every month but there's a way to really grow into that and that's how that's just how you make money at it sure sure and letting that buyer know you have the capacity to do that kind of production work. right and if you don't have production work there is a way to make money so so really the the key is to turn high mix low volume into production one way or another either you get lots of parts or you standardize so much that it flows through your shop like production right well tell me more about more about that because we've talked about you know the really the three levels mm -hmm. one is kind of prototype one-off stuff mm -hmm. and then the second is uh if you get repeat orders for that stuff for that kind of volume the 5 10 20 pieces. sure sure yeah. and then the third is production like a plan production that's right yeah, plan production so it's all about standardizing. And before you, before you just shut your radio off or shut your phone and, and go to a different podcast, so let, me, let me explain a little bit. So we have parts. One part might have 200 holes, and then one might have one hole, two slots, and you know, some milled 3D features in it. Two totally different parts. You're going to approach it differently. You're going to use a little different tooling. Um, but if there's a way you can standardize at the machine. So me and myself... Um, we went to Hirschman fixtures. There's 3R, there's a row, there's Hirschman fixtures. It's a quick change. It's, it's the basic, very basic automation. You buy a Hirschman chuck. It might cost you 3500 bucks, four grand to have that. But And then we would board, not bore out the center, but we'd put a dowel pin in that, and then we would find our X and Y on the dowel pin, and our Z was the face of that chuck. So everything on that machine was programmed to a fixture that was on the machine that never came off. And then now all the programmers are like, bro, all my guys are going to crash all my tooling. No programmer, you're in charge of the code. So the first line of your code is, is your Z offset, you Z up, and you say, hey, instead of going in at the base of that fixture and just milling through everything you just clamped to that quick change fixture, now you set your Z up to an appropriate level above the part, and you program from there. So, but... If you don't have to reset your X, Y, and Z for every part, now you're not having to pull an indicator out and edge finder and all that stuff. So now your machine's ready as far as your G54, your offset page. You're ready right then, right there to start. And you can, you can do different things. I like Hirschman because they're about 20% less than 3R and Aroa. They're all three great, man. They repeat within two ten thousandths of an inch. With 10,000 cycles, the gauge R&R is ridiculous on these things. They're solid fixtures, but you start at the machine to where everything's the same, and you program off of that. So instead of programming to every part and every part being different, you program to the fixture. Sure. Right? And you standardize that. The, the thing you standardize to the machine to where you remove all the, all the variation around that. So statistically, you're going to be better off doing that. But you have to make sure your entry line on your program is a Z-positive move so you don't crash into your fixture. But you and, and that is your first thing. Your setup, guys, it's the number one thing and the first thing you check off the box, right? Yeah. So that's number one. And we went through, we had about 35 machines in my little shop. Every, every machine, the first 10 tools were identical. We had a 2-inch shell mill. We had a half-inch end mill. We had a 3-8 end mill. We had a quarter-inch end mill. We had a 3-8 ball mill. 
and, and so on and so forth. And we standardize the first 10 tools in every machine. And every programmer use those parts to do all your roughing and everything else to get all the basic stuff started, right? Sure, sure. And then the second 10 tools were our special tools. If we needed a corner rounding tool or if we needed a special step drill or a, a thread mill or something like that or a, a certain drill because, you know, you, you can't have every size hole in your machine unless you can interpolate everything. Depending on the tolerance, you don't know what you're going to do there. But, but the second 10 tools are all your custom tools. So... That way your setup guy <laughs> doesn't have to change his first 10 tools. Now you're moving half the tools. Half You want to remove him having to change, him or her having to change your first half of the tools. Now you're reducing your setup time. So not only is he not having to find G54, G55, and G56 because those origin points are already set in a machine, right. but now he doesn't have to change out half your tooling. Now that's standard. Now can you get away with it 100% of the time? No, but you can get away with it. 75 percent sure right and significantly reduce the setup time right and now your programs are standard too because your tooling library is built it's so the tools in the machine are the same as the tools in the program that you're programming to yep, yep. so now you can kind of standardize some of the the programming work that your tool one is always this and tool two is always this and tool three is always this and, and there's you you'd think oh man that's not gonna make much of a difference but if you save five minutes or you save five minutes for your programmer and 10 minutes for your setup person. That's 15 minutes. That's a quarter of an hour job. Now, add in the time they have to walk around to get all the tools if you're not toolkitting and all that, right? So you standardize this stuff, and next thing you know is you create more flow in your machine. You're not having to edge find, not having to indicate, right? So now you try to work toward a standardization effort to where things flow through your shop. Now 15 minutes, you can still bid that 15 minutes, but you put the 15 minutes in your pocket instead of the customer's pocket. Sure. And your and your and your team is totally okay with that kind of stuff because it's easier on them. It's easier on them. It's not it's, that's not going to get them out of the bed in the morning. That's right. Um, so the, the the really hard work is still is still there for the artisan, right? But, but uh, I'll tell you what, we took our team um, and we took them all out to lunch and we said, "Hey, let's what's our average setup time?" And we took all the data back about a year and a half, and we found our average setup time was 42 hours. Now, people that do one-off work, very difficult work, five-axis work, they're going to feel me here because your programming takes a lot of time. Then when you get to the machine, you you get your vice in there, you put your piece of stock in, you set all your tools, and you're hunting and pecking and looking for all your tools because you got to find them. And sometimes the machine sets because you're missing a tool. Uh, I, I'm sure... I can't see you, but raise your hand if you need a tool to start a program and you don't have it in your shop, and all of a sudden you got to expedite, right? <laughs> you got to make a quick milk run for a tool or borrow a tool for somebody or go to the old toolmaker's box and you steal one out of his box. But the, the just the ill-preparedness of starting the job. Right. We lost three-quarters of our time, so how did I do this? We set up a camera. So we handed the guy the folder with the print, and we started a camera, and we hit go. And we recorded the entire setup, and it was 42 hours on average. So we took all this data. It was 42 hours. And then we all sat in a room and said, okay, what could we do different to cut out this time? And we spent like four weeks on this, right? It's, it's not a quick process. And we went through all 42 hours of this, and we, and we drilled it all down, and we standardized. We went to Hirschman Fixturing, and then we went to Standardized Tooling. And then we went to how do we standardize a program, and, and we did a whole other one on programming, and how do we get the first program out to be the right program, not a whole bunch of edits, right? Right, and, right. And we drilled down and we drilled down. It was a Greenbelt project. Next thing we knew, 
our average setup time on a part that we never did before was six hours, from 42 to six hours. If it was a repeat part, it was six minutes and 48 seconds. Dave, that's that's staggering because what it really means is, you know, um, on-time delivery, well, at least your lead times Mm -hmm. go down considerably and allows you to win more work. We saved a million dollars that year in that little department. We gave everybody a $2 an hour raise, and we still pocketed $700,000. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're talking you're talking. everybody's happy, huge win, big celebration. People are making more money, and the company was a lot more profitable for it. And all we did is we standardized. We we started really digging into toolkitting, making sure everybody had everything at the beginning. It was, it was really, really a cool process. I could talk about it all day, as you can tell. Yeah, and you know, you know, the people in the listening audience, you know, well, well, give me an example of how that works. And you know, we talked about Proto Labs, so t- explain that a little bit. So Proto Labs, everybody's heard of Proto Labs, man. You you send them a you send them a model, and two days later they make a part and ship it to you, and it's kind of how fast they do it is almost ridiculous. They made a lot of money doing this, but they standardized a certain type of part as far as material, certain size of part, and this type of part and this size of part would go in this kind of machine. And it would be, the programming was automated, okay? Now, they wouldn't give you the two ten thousandths of an inch tolerance. They'd give you a couple thousand tolerance, but they'd give you a near-net shape and something engineers could play with, form, fit, and function. So the programming was all standardized. The tooling was all standardized. The fixturing was all standardized. The machine and the type of the material was all standardized. So they might have a room of 100 machines, you send your part, it's automatically programmed, it goes in that machine with those tools, and off you go. And, and these guys these guys sold for a great amount of money because they could turn a prototype just so quick. They, I mean, no one else could Sure, and that's, touch that's high misc, low, low volume. I mean, No volume, it's like one, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But yes. they, ma- they managed to make it feel like a production environment. And... Uh, so to, to the extent that they could, uh, their throughput capacity was high. But it wasn't, see, we get wrapped around the axle thinking about the part. Well, this part's so different. Quit thinking about the part. Think about the process. Think about standardizing the process. How do we standardize a process? How do we make the process for X part look the same as the process for the Y part? And that is where it's at. It's in standardizing tooling, standardizing your approach methods, or your theory, your programming theory, standardizing your fixturing. That's how you get there. And all of a sudden, your repeat low volume work feels like production work because it's, okay, I made this before, slap, slap, six and a half minutes later, boom, you're making the next part. It's just like that. And it's a good filing system. It's a great toolkitting system. It's really getting your, your men and women that work with you involved in how do we make this better? How do we kit this? How do we make sure you have everything you need for your job? Because I'd rather pay you more money and have you work a little a little less hours because you have a good process than have to sure. hire somebody we sure. don't know and think, let's let's maximize on what we have. Finding employees is almost impossible now. Yeah, yeah, and pro- finding programmers and set up people. Oh, and, my. And You're, so this is just a win-win-win. Today we're in a grow-your-own. I mean, that's a whole other podcast, yeah, yeah. But, but that's for sure. But you can make high-mix, low-volume feel more like production through standardization so my my big flag here is try it try it because it works and if you and if you get stuck if you want to challenge it call me email me 
Um, I'd love to talk more about this. I got a huge passion for it because I was able to do it not in a production shop, but in a high mix, low volume shop. And then I took it to a production shop and sailed it, right? So I've been successful with both these things. I've been in a job shop with onesie twosies. I've been in a production shop with hundreds of thousands. Um, there is a way through statistics and through standardization to do this. Right on, Dave. Right on, Mike. We at EBITDA Growth Systems do what we do to impact lives through improving business performance. To get access to our content or engage us in any way, you can reach our contact page or any of our information on our website at www.ebitagrowthsystems.com.